You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Philippians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 reads as follows, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell, continually churn over these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul is speaking now of the gift that the Philippians had sent him, the gift of, 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 of money, of funds, of help, in a practical way. He goes on to say, though, not that I speak from want. Paul is anxious to say that God is sufficient. I don't speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Most of us would prefer the latter. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> Just read the other day a new book that I have by a fairly well-known secular psychiatrist. He has an opening sentence in the book that goes like this. He says, when we consider the complexities and the pressures of everyday life, we can only marvel that our fellow man is able to function as well as he does. Aren't you sometimes staggered by the weight of pressure that you find somebody is living under? You ever found anybody that really has it together? Anybody that really seems to have it all put together and this is an image of spiritual maturity. If you found that person, get to know them better and you'd find out there are problems. Get to know the insides of anybody, and you'll find out that that person is functioning under tremendous pressure. Anybody here ever felt pressured or hemmed in? That am I talking to myself? I'm certainly talking to myself, but I hope you're listening in. It's relevant to you. Ever felt pressure or hemmed in or controlled by your circumstances? Maybe a job you don't like, money problems, medical concerns, no love in your marriage, kids worrying you're sick. Bills from the dentist as soon as you finish paying off the doctor. Struggles with depression, anxiety, anger. Pressures from outside and pressures from inside. How are we supposed to cope with this? How are we supposed to cope with all these kinds of problems? How should we deal with them? Sometimes the pressure is matter to the point of seeming unbearable. Sometimes it seems that as soon as you get one problem solved, another one comes up. Sometimes it's a very small kind of a thing. Last week I had my transmission fixed on my car. And as I drove out of the mechanic's office, mechanic's shop, after having my transmission fixed, 
and it took about two or three weeks to get the thing properly diagnosed and to finally have the error corrected. As I was driving out saying, finally, the car's working right. I pressed on my brakes and they were very, very mushy. I remember saying to myself, for crying out loud, does nothing ever go right in this world? Ever have that happen? Sure you have. How are you supposed to cope? Sometimes we get an occasional pick-me-up, but pretty soon we run into another put-me-down. How should a Christian respond to his unstable, unpredictable, frustrating, and sometimes very, very cruel world? Paul, in this particular passage in which we just read, said that he had learned to be content in whatever circumstance that he happened to find himself at any given moment. And notice he said he had learned it, implying there is a, a learning process involved before I'll be able to truly be in that condition which Paul speaks of, of being absolutely content and being able to accept whatever comes with, 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 with no problem. Lord, I can accept it. Lord, I can handle it. In verse 12, we read that Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret of remaining content whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether or not things are going as I want them and the things that I earnestly desire are happening, or the things that I passionately want are not happening at all and just the opposite is happening. I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstances. How did he learn it? What's the secret? How do you learn to really cope in a Christian way? In a series of five messages beginning today, I want to discuss the subject, the secret of contentment. And in order to give you some idea of where my mind is going, I want to give you the titles of all five sermons. Just so you know where I'm going. The title of the message today, the first in a series on the secret of contentment, is this. Contentment what it is and how not to find it. Next week, what you must believe before you can learn the secret. What you must believe before you can ever learn the secret. Third, what is the secret? That's the third week. Fourth, how can we make the secret work? So many books are written on the secret of Christian living, the secret of prayer, the secret of witnessing, the secret of that. We find out the secret doesn't do a thing for us. How can we put to practice what Paul is speaking of here in verse 12 when he says, I've learned the secret? How can we make the secret work? That's message four. And the last one is how can the body help us learn the secret? How can the body help us learn the secret? Today, contentment, what it is and how not to find it. Let me begin by discussing a few common but very wrong approach, wrong approaches to handling the kinds of pressures and problems that we have. It seems to me as I look at lots of people and have the chance to talk with many at a very intimate and personal level, it seems to me that many, many times we Christians borrow from the world's strategies of how to cope with problems. We take their methods their techniques, we baptize them by giving them some Christian content, we Christianize a worldly strategy for coping with the problem, and then wonder why it doesn't work. So often we thought maybe that we were handling our problems biblically, we're trying to do all the right things, we're trying to respond to the difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves, we're trying to respond in the right kinds of way, we think the way that we're responding is biblical, we think it's Christian, but it's not working. And then sometimes... 
we respond to that fact, the fact that our techniques for handling problems are not working at all and we're still miserable and upset and this peace of God that passes comprehension, that's just a bunch of words in a book. It's got nothing to do with what's happening inside of me. And we, then we respond to that by saying, is this all true? Is this whole business about Christianity, is it really, really true? Is there really a God after all? I've believed it, I've, 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 I've taught it, I've tried to practice it, but frankly, after 20 years of living it, it isn't working. And I've had a number of people tell me that. Christianity isn't working for me. I can't seem to get a hold of all these good things that you people talk about from the pulpit. Where is it? Maybe it's just a form of psychology. Maybe Christianity is just one form of psychology that appeals to us feeble-minded people. Just a technique to help us solve our problems. And if it works for you, fine. If it doesn't, try some other form of psychology. Listen, there is adequate reason to believe that there really is a God, that God has talked to us in verbal form through his word and in living form through his son, Jesus Christ. There is adequate reason to believe that what God says is true when he tells us about ourselves, that we in fact are sinful, that we in fact are separated from a holy God, that there is nothing we can do about our problem. We're sinners, we're condemned to death because we deserve it. A holy, righteous God who runs the universe says, Larry, you're a sinner and I must punish you. And I say, but God, let me try harder. He says, it's so good, the punishment is death. And I say, what can I do? He says, nothing, I've done it for you. I sent my son Jesus, he lived a perfect life, the life you never could lead. It was impossible for you to lead it, but he led it. Then he died. And he died to take the punishment for your sins. And if you will simply accept what Jesus did on the cross as the punishment you deserve and say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. You died for me and I accept your punishment. I trust now no longer in me and how good I am or how much I do, but I trust in the finished work of Christ and his payment for my sins. Then God says, now you have life. I'll forgive your sins and I'll give you life. We believe that that's true. And, then, and most of us here this morning, I'm sure, accept that as truth as well. Then we go on to try to live the Christian life, to handle the problems that Christians face. And we fail. And then we say, is it all true? They're really working. What's wrong? Could it be that perhaps sometimes we're approaching life and trying to handle problems in an unbiblical way, but we think it's Christian? But it's not. And that's why it's not working. Let me suggest what I believe are three common strategies for handling problems which are not biblical, but which Christians often practice and end up wondering where the peace is. The first strategy that the world offers, which we baptize into Christianity and call it Christian, is tune out the problem. Tune out the problem. Has anybody ever told you when things are going rough that you ought to keep busy? You heard that? Sure you have. You tried it? Did it help? Want to keep busy? Want to keep busy? I'm feeling peaceful. It's working. not don't think about your problems don't feel sorry for yourself get your mind off your problems and get to work all right doesn't bring peace though now it may be good advice to keep busy i think it is good advice i think you ought to keep busy and not think about your problems i think that's excellent that's important that's helpful but it isn't the route towards contentment christianity has been criticized by some as the opium of the people dull the pain don't think about your problems fill your mind with thoughts of heaven until you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Now, it's good, and it's biblical, to exercise great care on how we think. 
what we think about. You've heard me talk many, many times about the importance of what's on your mind. We just heard two years ago on that. What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? It's important. And keep your mind fixed on the eternal truths of Scripture. But don't expect that in so doing, you are going to be dulling the pain of the problems that you're facing. It doesn't work that way. Many of us are looking for a way out of our problems. And we say, maybe if I memorize Scripture, I won't feel the pressure and the heartache and the anguish. Maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, then perhaps the pain will go away that I won't have to face the problem. So often that's a, a Christianized way of the worldly strategy of just tune out your problems. But Christianity is not, and was never meant to be, I don't believe, an anesthetic to numb our sensitivities. I rather think it's more like a counter-anesthetic which increases our responsiveness to the all-too-frequent pain that we encounter in life. Christians often take this worldly strategy of tuning out the problems and baptize it through the mechanism of prayer. We often abuse prayer, it seems to me, as, as a means of dulling the pain and, remo and removing ourselves from an acute awareness of the problems that we face. But again, that's just no more, if you use prayer that way, that's no more than a Christianized version of transcendental meditation. We criticize the TM people. Do we practice it? Do we practice the same kind of a thing? TM advocates repeat their mantra. Christians repeat their creeds or the name of Jesus over and over again sometimes as if just the recitation, just the repetition of these words will somehow bring peace. And it does. A form of peace, TM works. Using Christianity like TM works. Just fill your mind with a word. The TM people might say, Om, 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 Om. We say, God, 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 God. It's the same thing. Just a word, just a noise, sound. Our sounds Christian. Their sounds pagan. There are two pagan strategies for dealing with our problems. You see, Christians are not told to find contentment by diverting our attention from our problems under religious words or concepts, even if the words are good and the concepts true. Christians are not to say, God, 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 or thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, or Christ, 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 Christ. We're not going to say these words in a meaningless, repetitive way. The Lord said, I'm, I'm tired, he said in the Gospels. I'm tired of those people who just meaninglessly recite words. They're good words. But there's no content. It's a way of tuning out your problems. I want to think about it. Pray, 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 pray. You have a problem? Sure do. What are you doing about it? Praying about it? Is it working? No. Why? Are we using prayer as a tune out our problems technique? Bible study can be the same thing. You got a problem in your marriage? Read the Bible. Pray about it. Ignore the problem. Do you have unpaid bills? Memorize Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Keep your mind fixed on that, but don't think about the bills. Don't deal with reality. Tune out your problems. That isn't the way to contentment. A second worldly strategy, which I think we sometimes follow and Christianize it, is this. Just accept the problem. If you can't change it, accept it. Now that's really good advice. Something that you can't really change, something that you aren't responsible to change, it's impossible to change, you must accept it. That's true. But it's hard. Unless we become passive and quietly sigh as we shrug our shoulders and say, so it is. I'll accept it. Thanks. But I'll accept it. Christians have a clever way of adding biblical content to this technique. 
We advise people, now, please listen carefully to this, because I could be very badly misunderstood here. We advise people sometimes to accept their circumstances because God is in control. Now, that's true. But it's often a cop-out. That's true. God is in control. We believe that. We believe, we insist upon the truth that God is a sovereign God. We believe the scriptures teach that. God is in control of our world. But does that mean, or what does that mean practically? When a spouse commits adultery, I might have shrugged my shoulders and say, well, God's in control, so I'll accept the whole thing. Could it be the gods that's as angry as you are about that? He didn't, call, he didn't cause the sin, did he? Look at it this way. God is in control of history, no question about that. God has said, I'm going to work all things together according to my own counsel. Here's history, here's the goal, we're going that way, nobody's going to stop me. That's clear. God's in charge. God's going to work all things together after the counsel of his own will. He is a sovereign God, but don't let that teaching make you think that you don't make a difference. Don't let it make you think that you aren't somehow important. The, the doctrine of God's sovereignty does not reduce my life to a bit of theater. A script which has already been written, a script including your spouse's infidelity or whatever else it might be. Am I to find contentment by saying, well, God's in control, he's responsible for all that's happening. That's the way it goes. Praise God. That doesn't really work, does it? It kind of dulls the pain. It tells you that you're trying to accept something by adding some words, and we sit back and do nothing. take that position, it seems to me, is to reduce Christianity to no more than computerized mechanics, to pre-programmed robotry, and I don't believe that's the way it is. It is not the biblical drama of real people making real choices, doing real things which really influence history. We are significant. We do make a difference. God will bring to himself a people whom he has chosen. That's his business, and he's going to do it. He is doing it. But now that I've been chosen, I've been brought to him by his containing love, now I'm free to live by choice, by my choice. Now I'm free to really make a difference in this world. I do make a difference. You make a difference. God's in charge, but I make a difference. The truths are parallel. Christian contentment is not reached by glibly and passively saying, God is in control, so I'll accept everything which happens to me, and then to sit back and mutter words like, thank you, or trust the Lord. That's nothing more, oftentimes, or it can reduce itself, nothing more than stoicism a deliberate indifference to what is happening. It's not Christianity. There's nothing passive about Christian contentment. And as we'll see a little later on, within the truth, within the biblical truth that God is a sovereign God, there is room for significant activity on my part. And in order to learn contentment, I must understand that. The third worldly method for handling our problems, responding to our pressures, which we Christianize, which has a measure of truth to it, but isn't the whole story is, the, is this, hang in there. You've heard me often talk about the importance of perseverance. I believe that. I believe it's critical that a Christian must hang in there. But I don't believe that Christian contentment is found by just taking the position, just guts it out, brave it out, hang in there, endure it, stiff upper lip, keep going. If that's the only approach that you take to the problems that you have, if that's the sum total of your effort to respond to your difficulties, I'm going to make it. If that's your sum total, you aren't moving towards contentment. At least not the contentment Paul spoke of, I don't believe. If your whole approach to handling your problems is that, just stick it out, you will likely lead a very dull, drudgerous, burdened, weighted life. You'll get frustrated. You won't like what's happening. You'll hate it, but you'll say, I'm going to go on. And you'll wonder, where's the joy? Where's that sense of reality that God really loves me and he's given me an exciting life? My life isn't exciting. It's dull, it's boring, it's drudgerous, it's full of pressure. I don't like it. 
But I'll hang in there. That's not the road to contentment. Three wrong approaches to contentment. Tune out your problems with whatever, prayer, ministry, meditation, whatever words you want to do. Second, just accept your miserable circumstances, sitting back, staring at your problems, and mumbling something about God. Third, make yourself stick to it no matter what. Let's shift gears a bit. Those are three wrong strategies. The title of the sermon today is contentment, what it is, and how not to find it. That's how not to find it. That's how not to move towards contentment. What are we trying to move towards? If we're going to understand how to get it, maybe we should define what it is. What is the contentment that Paul's speaking of? The word that Paul uses, and we have translated as contentment in our Bibles, literally means self-sufficient. That's what it means, the word, literally. It means self-sufficient, needing no assistance from outside. Adequate within yourself. That's what the word means. Self-sufficient. It means a condition of maturity in which I remain completely, now listen to this, a condition of maturity in which I remain completely in control of myself no matter what is happening in my life. A condition of maturity in which I remain completely in control of myself doesn't mean you might not cry. Doesn't mean you might not sob. It doesn't mean that you might not feel like you're falling apart. It does not mean that you aren't going through terrible pain, but it does mean no matter what's happening inside, no matter what's happening outside, you're still in charge of yourself. <clears throat> you still know where you're going, and you have the strength to get there, no matter what happens outside. That's contentment. Wouldn't that be great to have? Nothing can throw you. You can handle anything without falling apart. You know, I look at my life, and I'm miles and miles away from that. Around our house, we, uh, we have a way of having our pens, my pens, disappear. On my desk in my office at home, I have a little jar where I keep pens. But every three weeks, I buy a dozen. And I put them in. Two weeks later, I go to write something, and my pens are gone. Am I content? You know how I usually respond to that? Rachel, where are the pens? That's how I respond. Wouldn't it be nice to get to a place where you're able to take control of yourself even when you lose pens? Or when something worse happens? Does anything throw you? Is there anything happening in your life right now that you can't handle? Or it seems like you can't? Paul says that he had learned how to be content, sufficient within himself. Now recall this, understand this. When Paul uses a word which means sufficient within himself, understand Paul said in another, another place, Paul said that I live, nevertheless it isn't I that living, it's Christ that lives in me. When he spoke of self-sufficiency, when he used a word talking about the fact that I have all that I need within me to handle my problems, he wasn't saying I'm so strong, he's saying Christ is so strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that I belong to him, there is some way that I can understand that there is power within me, that I'm in control of me, and how I respond and how I deal with things, no matter what happens in my life. Yes, that's what contentment is. So Paul was saying he had, and he'd learned. Let me put it a different way. <clears throat> contentment means, <clears throat> catch this, contentment means that nothing in your life has to change. Think about the details of your life right now. That nothing in your life has to change from how it is right now in order for you to live as you should. Nothing in your life has to change from the way it is right now 
in order for you to live as you should. Nothing's wrong in praying for things to change. Nothing wrong. Nothing is wrong in desiring your circumstances to be better. Nothing's wrong in any of that. But Paul said contentment is that no matter what's happening right now, I need nothing to change for me to live as I should. Paul, you recall, wrote these words while he was in prison. He wasn't writing from a luxurious home on the Riviera. He was in a miserable, cold, dark prison, chained to a couple of guards, one on his right, one on his left, and Paul saying, I'm in charge. Imagine you told the guards that, hey, fellas, I'm in charge. Oh, is that right, Paul? <laughs> Paul saying, yes, I'm not in charge of my circumstances. I'm praying about the change. I'd rather be out there preaching to some friends of mine. But as long as I'm here, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of me. There's a God who has liberated me from having to be subject to my world. There's a God who has freed me from bondage to the elements of my world. I'm not now a puppet. I'm not now in a position where I need things to be different before I can be happy. I'm free, fellas. I'm in chains. I can't move more than five inches, but I'm free. And you don't know anything about it. Let me tell you about it. And I'm sure Paul went on to tell him all about it. So many people, though, are saying, if only this would change, or if only that would change, if only this would take place, if only that would take place, then I could get serious about living for the Lord. But that wasn't Paul's experience. He was belting out the gospel favorites while he was sitting there in prison. Listen, if there is an area in your life which you should be dealing with, and if you're waiting for something external to happen before you deal with it, you're wrong. And I have really good news for you. Rather than judging you for that, let me say that God has given you all the power you need to deal with your problem right now, whatever it might be, to get serious about the Lord without having one thing change in your life. Paul is saying, if good things happen, praise the Lord, enjoy them. If you have a steak dinner in front of you, enjoy it. Have a nice time with it. Nothing's wrong with that. It's okay for Christians to enjoy steak. But if good things don't happen, if things get worse rather than better, and so many Christians have said, the day I got serious about the Lord, everything went wrong standard experience of so many. And if that happens, Paul says that whether I have steak or whether I have nothing, I've learned how to be content. I've learned how to remain in control of me. I know who I am. I know I belong to God. I know where I'm going. I'm in charge. My circumstances in no way control me. He had learned a life of rejoicing, of living faithfully, of victorious living no matter what his circumstances. He had learned the secret of contentment. What's the secret? How do you get to this condition? We've discussed three ways not to get there. It isn't a matter of just tuning out your world and keeping busy and occupied with whatever, your ministry and your prayer life and whatever. Just don't think about that, though. That's cop-out. That's tuning out your problems. It isn't a matter of saying, well, God's in charge and uh, I can handle it, I guess. That isn't going to get you to contentment. It isn't a matter of saying, I'm going to stick it out. What's the secret? How do we get to that point of contentment? Come back in two weeks. <laughs> if I were to put into words what I believe the Scripture teaches the secret to be, very few people would be helped by it. Very few people, some I know would, but very few people, I'm afraid, maybe would really be helped by the secret. There's no big super secret. Y'all probably know what it is anyhow. But before you can lay hold of the secret that the Scripture teaches, I believe you need to understand a basic truth about something before you can grasp it. And that's next week's sermon. 
What do you need to know, to believe, to hang on to before you can grasp the secret? That's next week's. The week after, what is the secret? The week after, how to make it practical. The week after, how can the body help? Let's pray. Father, we're so far from Paul's example. We're so far in our own Christian experience from being what you want us to be. Father, we're, we're thankful that you don't condemn us. There's no condemnation now for us because we're acceptable because of Jesus. Father, we're thankful that you aren't a critical God who's sitting there just fed up with us. Father, we're thankful that you recognize our frailty, our immaturity. We're thankful that you recognize the difficulty that we have in laying hold of spiritual truth. Father, thank you that you're a patient God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've died to bring us into a relationship with the God of the universe. And Father, we believe that as we enter more deeply into that relationship that we'll learn what it means to be content, to recognize that we are in charge of our lives by your grace and by your power through no strength or merit of our own, but by your grace and by your power that we are in charge of our own lives no matter what's happening around us. Lord, give us that freeing, that liberating reality in our own lives. God, deliver us from being chained to circumstances. Deliver us from being chained to other people's reactions to us. Deliver us from being chained to a particular group that we associate with, dependent on them, needing them to the point where if they're not there, we fall apart. Lord, teach us what it means to be content that we can in fact testify to each other and to the world around us that there really is a God who indwells the hearts of men and women who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. May our lives be a consistent testimony to that wonderful truth. Use these sermons, this series of five messages, to move us more along the path to maturity, to Christ-likeness, to obedience, to being what you want us to be. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.